Welcome to the Andrew D'Angelo podcast. Constant Constance. Each week, Andrew, renowned jazz saxophonist and brain cancer survivor, invites us to look at the many worlds of his guests with conversations that cover all the arts, human resilience, a little bit of politics, and a lot of humour. You can't fail to have a fantastic time. Hey everyone, and welcome to the show today. Thank you all so much for checking out the show. I really appreciate it. It's been fun to speak to all these wonderful people. And today we have somebody I've known for decades. Her name's Andrea Parkins. She is uh, American born, but she at the moment lives in Berlin and that's where I spoke to her. She plays accordion, she's an improviser, she's a composer. She's just one of the most genuinely genuine people i know seriously she speaks from the heart anyway everybody please enjoy andrea parkins i'm a, i'm kind of a slow learner and i can't just listen to something one time i need to like no, hear I, it a few times you know so. i this is actually an interesting top that's a topic because i'm composing something right now um we can talk about this later i'm composing something right now which means i have some sound files that I've recorded and I'm trying to, and I want them to be in an installation and I'm sort of trying to figure out what arrangement they should be. And I'm trying to figure out if it's like a concert length piece or it's a perpetual kind of generative like piece. Like loop, like a loop kind of thing or? Well, it's sort of like a loop. But anyway, I've been listening to the same thing for like 48 hours running, just leaving it on. Fair enough. And, you know, yeah, I think that's what it should be, but it's. I just like turned it off a little while ago, so I, you know, I, I have to like get it into my ears like that before I know what to do with it. So, oh, it's, oh, it's, thank God, because that is exactly. I, I, I can't decide if it's, you know, my age or the whole brain thing, but I just really need to sit with something and 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 live with it for a while before I can, either that, or it's first reaction. I don't know if you're also, that way. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's. You know, I had like, it's really interesting. It's something I recorded about four years ago at a residency. And I was kind of like, it's piano. Nobody wants me to play piano. Nobody wants to hear me playing piano. So I kind of put it away. But, you know, piano was really my first instrument. And when I practice anything, that's what I practice. Okay. So, so I just thought, you know, maybe go back to it. And it was super interesting to listen to. I actually like it. <laughs> so the, isn't the idea to because there's that point where I don't know it yet and then I like it or I really love it and then I start to hate it I, you know I don't know if that happens to you I but start it, with hating I okay. hate, first, hate first love later that's me but, um, but we can I mean this is see, for me this is actually very interesting stuff yeah yeah how, yeah how this stuff works I find super interesting yeah, I will, I will keep this if you're okay with yeah. it. This is well, great. Or we'll, we can just see. But, you know, I mean, I, um, it's interesting because, you know, I've, I've been working with this electronic processing for, you know, almost 20 years. And normally I'm using it um, with, like, samples I've made or live processing or in conjunction with the accordion and the amp. 
And so it's like very electroacoustic and very electronic. And then I had this idea about, well, what if I go back to my piano playing? And the way I used to uh, improvise as a pianist, you know, I was very influenced, of course, by Cecil Taylor. So right. I had this very kind of florid, energy-istic, energetic um, kind, <laughs> of, kind of playing. Yeah. And then I thought, you know, what the world needs now is not another free jazz player. So I kind of stepped back from it. Yay! But not <laughs> right. another free jazz pianist, let's say. Okay. So I stepped back from it. But then I started thinking, well, what if I change my technique and incorporate the electronics? What would that mean? So what it meant is that I had to give more space for the electronics and just play very sparsely. And it's... I've got something where I'm just like playing a little bit on the keys, a little bit inside, and it's mostly the electronics processing. And I'm finding I'm really enjoying it. It's allowing me to kind of return to my roots as a pianist, but really do it in a different way. I, I, That's cool. I, it is cool. And I don't remember who I was interviewing, but we were talking about this concept of free jazz and how it's kind of become, it's not free anymore. It's like this actual... Uh, genre, this context, uh, maybe what, late Coltrane or something? Yeah, everything is. I mean, right. everything. It's is not really. It's, it's not really free. It's you got to play this way. You can't improvise a pop tune. You can't improvise a a blues. You got to improvise a free improv in this manner. And that's just one of the things that struck me when I was listening to uh, elective affinities. Is that all right? This is obviously some kind of. At least I thought it was free it was you were, you were improvising. improvising completely right uh that was one of the questions i was going to ask yeah. and I, I was like oh thank god it doesn't sound like fire in a pet store or something like this you know whatever analogy you know what i'm talking about <laughs> i am guilty of it i say this on the show all the time i'm totally guilty of fire in a pet store but um by that what do you mean when you say fire in a pet store what is that screaming oh, and screeching yeah. and honking and like dogs barking and cats squealing <laughs> and birds like flying around and there's nothing wrong with that but if it's supposed to be actually free you know like open improv then it could really be a ballad it could be soft as in some of your music it could have spoken word it could have lyrics right it could be yeah. quote unquote well, melodic I, yeah i don't worry about all that i'm just trying to listen and where that takes me, takes me. Although I have to say, there are certain musical situations where there's a certain implication of pulse. You know, I just played a gig um, a couple days ago uh, with a Norwegian bass player named Dan Peter Sundland. Oh yeah, of course. And uh, with uh, Michael Greiner, who actually has a, he's a beautiful jazz drummer. And we were improvising freely. And I think a little bit it had to do with, you know, I have hardly seen another human being in, you know, God, God knows how long, let alone played in, with another human being in God knows how long. A couple of months anyway. And, you know, so there was like a lot of energy. It was very cathartic. This was on Saturday evening. And I did feel I played differently. And it was definitely much more... I don't think I would call it fire in a pet store, but uh, someone I know said, well, Andrea, as usual, you really bring it. And I understood that person to mean that there was like pulse and kind of um, 
a momentum, which I don't always want to do. Sometimes I like things when really things are full of stasis and you know not moving, and you're just kind of dealing with timbre in a really subtle way and just revealing stuff. That 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 is exactly. Sorry for interrupting, but when I was listening to the recording that you sent me that you wanted to speak to from 2019, I was trying to think of, of the descriptive word and I, I was just having such a difficult time and stasis that that's exactly that like encapsulates at least that recording and maybe even your playing for me that you, you, you find the energetic moment of what you're doing. And like you said, you don't worry about whether it's not something or it is something you're just being yourself. Is that fair or not? I think I'm not being myself. I think I'm listening to who I'm with. And um, I mean, part of being myself is listening to who I'm with and also kind of um, considering the situation and also very much considering the room. Like I'm really listening to kind of the acoustic environment. And it's a little bit weird when you're making a record and you play electronics as I do. Um, because very often what happens is that it's just going direct. Um, right. So you like this, you have, you have headphones on, so you're only hearing well, through the headphones. The, when I'm playing laptop, when you're recording, you know, if it's not like a live gig, that's often what happens. I actually like to have a monitor in the room. So there's more. I was going to ask that sound. too. And also if I have the, if I'm also playing accordion more or less at the same time, there is definitely an amp in the room and that's totally about, you know, room acoustics and reflections and my ability to make feedback because of my proximity or lack thereof to an amplifier. I mean, it's very, very physical and it's very reactive acoustically, like in real acoustic space and real acoustic electronic space, I guess. But the when I'm doing the laptop, very often in a recording session, it might be that there's no monitor. We're just listening to that stuff on headphones. And that becomes like this weird compressed uh, and not, I don't mean like compression compressed, but just it's kind of a space that maybe it's a little bit acoustically claustrophobic. You know, it doesn't have air in it. Well, well, I think, I think there's this understanding from people who are not musicians that, you know, anywhere from the Beatles to, you know, modern day music, and even before the Beatles that everybody's in the studio just jamming. And that was the case certainly early on, but then once uh, monitoring came in and people were using headphones, or I had one guest say cans, and I was like, all right, kind of That's showing your age there. <laughs> well, I know what cans are, so I'm showing my age too. Right, right, yeah, but, anyway. my, but, but yeah. my point is that, I mean, even now I'm not monitoring myself, I'm just monitoring you and I have yeah. kind of, one ear off and that's what I do in the studio too mm. so I can hear myself playing mm. and do my best to hear the band in whatever context I'm in and yeah somehow we went through this period maybe in the late 60s 70s especially 80s and 90s where everybody was isolated in the studio they were in a booth or you know there were gobos all over right and the only thing you were hearing was whatever the recording engineer was sending to your headphones and there was something about that record um that that you were that you sent me that or i listened on Bandcamp, but anyway that you sent me and yeah. that i was like i wonder we were in the room together right and but I, I was really seriously wondering if you had speakers up and were listening that way or 
Well, it was a combination. We were in a very uh, fairly small uh, room, uh, and you know, I had my amp there with me, and um, you know, we improvised. And uh, this, and I guess I should say, so this record is um, a duo record with electronic musician Matthew Ostrowski. Mm. He's from New York, and he and I have worked together in different uh, kind of contexts really for about 20 years, I would say. Um, so one of the ways we work together is that I use uh, electronic processing uh, that's uh, Max MSP based, and uh, he is the person that actually built the patch for me because I am not a programmer. So he programmed the patch for me, and this is the patch that I've been using all these years. So he, in a way, he's sort of, I don't know if you could say he's responsible for how I sound, but he understands what my intentions are with the electronics, and he's been able to make that possible for me. Do, don't you? Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, don't you think it'd be like saying that somebody's partner, whether it's a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, that'd be like saying my my life partner or whatever it is is responsible for making me who I am. No, they influence us, right? They have an effect on us, but right. they they are not us. And one one of the one of the I like to think I'm intuitive. Okay. So one of the intuitive hits I got when listening to to the record was that is this happening real time? Or are you triggered? Right, you're shaking your head yes already. But I think that so many people will go to a dance club and there's a DJ and the DJ's really just playing a song, right? And they might do a little bit of skipping around or something like this or, you know, and put on another song. But where you're truly, like you, Reed Anderson and his electronics and and uh, uh, I don't know if Aphex Twin, I don't know, he might actually have that all programmed out. I'm not really sure. Do you I know? think he does a lot of different things. But you know, just to say about the CD with Matthew, so Matthew is not my partner. He is a- Yeah, I know, I wasn't yeah, insinuating. Yeah, I, I was just, sure that's I was trying to draw a parallel between the well, two. Well, what we have is like, we're both very gestural musicians. Like if you saw us play live, actually we did um, an online, we did a, some an online concert recently in, uh, in Frequent Seams whose label which that was the label that the CD came out on, uh, did like a, a festival, an online festival. And, you know, he's in New York, I'm in Berlin, and we were playing and we were definitely looking each other at, at each other. And it's very, we have like a real gestural, literally gestural physical language that um, allows us to connect musically. And it's, it's kind of interesting. I mean, he, he's a very gestural player, I am as well. Um, and, but I guess the point being is that, um, you know, he's playing completely electronic. So we were in a, when we made that record, we were in the room together. The amp was in the room. We were listening to both of our electronics on headphones. So I had his electronics in my cans and <laughs> also, also my electronics. So, you know, we were hearing everything that way. Um, but at the same time, the amp was there and it's sort of, Maybe not the best way to do it, but it was a really fun session. And it was recorded by an engineer that I've been working with for years and years named Paul Jaluso. Oh, Paul, he's great. You know Paul? Yeah, I know of him. I don't know him. Paul, Paul has kind of recorded everything for me, especially um, like the room pieces and installations that I've made. He's really the guy for me. I've, I love working with him. Yeah, it, uh, 
it, 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 it's a capturing sound on a recording is so young that I, I understand. I mean, I had people in their twenties on my show and even a one young man who is, is 11 with his teacher because he wanted to talk about something and, you know, Recorded music is only one generation away. It's amazing. I mean, it, it's not, it's, I mean, yeah. one of the, one of the, can I just like go on a little sidetrack here? Totally. One of the go questions I wanted to ask you. Yeah. And I also had on um, some students from New England Conservatory who are doing this amazing music and they do it all by ear and mm -hmm. they talk about how they improvise until they get what they want and they're mm -hmm. documenting it. Mm -hmm. So it, I'm curious, um, Andrea, when you think about it, if somebody wants to play Beethoven's Fifth or some Mozart piece, I mean, they get the sheet music and they can replicate it, no problem. But the music that you're doing, I'm assuming you're not notating. And also these young people from the uh, Contemporary Improvisation Department at New England Conservatory. I was wondering, what if somebody wanted to play that music in 50 years? How are they going to do that? Are they going to sit down and learn it by ear or, you know, is there going to be some program or app that just, I don't, well, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, they're not, that's okay. Um, I mean, if I, you know, maybe they might do, you know, maybe they might hear something I do on accordion and they may wish to transcribe it the way, you know, we transcribe things. Um, I think, um, it's a little bit like this, you know, so I collect sounds and I kind of sculpt sounds, you know, I, I, um, record different kinds of stuff, you know, and put it together. Some of it, it's field recordings. Some of it is stuff I made on my instruments. A lot of the sounds that I make, um, some of them were made in the eighties, wow. uh, because I started electronic music in my early twenties, cutting tape on a, uh, you know, quarter inch tape on a machine with a splicing block and make concrete pieces. That's how I started doing electronic music. And at the same time, I bought a synthesizer. And from the very beginning, I started recording stuff. And in those days, it was like tape loops. Um, and then eventually, that stuff got moved to cassette. And that stuff got moved to um, when I started playing an Insonic sampler, um, which had floppy disks. I took all wow. of it. Yep. I mean, yeah, wow. that was it. Well, that was a, that was a beautiful machine. It sounded great. Yeah. And you could load discs while you were playing and you could have all these different layers going on. But so there, I, there, there must have been stuff that happened that you weren't expecting in, in the oh, floppy totally, disk age. Yeah, but yeah. But let, let me get to that in a minute. Okay. So what, I'm, what I want to say is that there was always this translation of format. So going from quarter inch tape to cassette, taking some of those sounds and putting them on the discs. And then eventually when I moved over to the laptop, taking that stuff and digitizing it on sound files. So some of my sounds are 30 years old. Wow. And That's I've amazing. done different things with them. Um, and then finally, like this max patch that I used to process my sound was actually the original version of it was kind of based on the structure of the insonic. Uh, because the insonic, of the what insonic? Of the insonic sampler that I played oh, for okay. years, because that sampler would glitch occasionally, like sometimes it would screw up, right. and it sounded amazing. 
And it made me think about you know, a lot of things that have become trendy now in critical theory about the glitch and failure and stuff that fails to re in order to reveal some other opportunity, which is something I'm totally into, um, and like not having control. So I kind of, this um, piece of software that I use now, this Max patch that Matthew Ostrowski helped build, um, actually is sort of formulated on this idea that you have a lot of things going on and sometimes it's out of your control and you're gonna have to let whatever happens, happens. And sometimes it's almost like it all falls apart. I'm very interested in that. Uh, right, because, uh, and just be nice to me here, but everything happens for a reason kind of thing or can you sum it up or like just going with the flow or being in the no, moment? No, no, I don't go with the flow. Um, <laughs> no, that has nothing to do with going with the flow. If anybody okay. who knows me knows I don't really go with the flow too much. But um, I tried, but you know, fail miserably. Um, so it's more like this. A long time ago, I was having a conversation with one of our colleagues, and I was talking about how hard it was to be playing music where I'm playing all these instruments at once and it's almost too much for me. It's almost physically too much when I'm playing the piano and I'm playing accordion and I'm playing sampler and you know, I'm running cassette tapes and I've got foot pedals and all this stuff is going on. And I said, you know, it almost feels like it's all gonna fall apart. And that person said to me, you know, that's what makes it interesting because we can feel that tension hmm. in the music and we can feel the awkwardness in it. It feels awkward to me. So I started thinking, okay, well, maybe the fact that it's awkward is interesting, and maybe if I don't worry about being a virtuoso or finessing things, but actually allowing these moments where stuff is really maybe just about gonna fall apart, the, the tension is interesting. So I'm actually going for um, difficulty. I actually am trying to build difficulty into the um, not only playing the music, but sometimes you know stuff that I make that isn't performed but is composed, and which is usually speaker pieces or room pieces, to sort of show that there's like this awkward gesture that almost doesn't quite make it. Uh, very cool. What do you mean by speaker pieces? I don't know what that means, Andrew. Well, I make as a composer. You know, I'm I don't have a band. I play, I improvise with many, many people, and um, it's a big part of my practice. But as a composer, most of what I do is make sound installations or I make performance installations so that there's, you know, it's stuff that's on multiple speakers in a room or two rooms or three rooms, and it's diffused that way. So multi-channel pieces for lack of a better way of putting it. And, and so when you're doing the multi-channel or the speaker pieces, how how preconceived are those? I totally, mean, you, they're totally composed, totally. Amazing. And that, ha that happens, they're built on a DAW. You know, I'm taking material, it's, it's like sculpture. You get some stuff, here's some stuff. Okay, like here's this, piece of felt, and here's the lipstick, which of course I keep nearby for Zoom, and, uh, <laughs> and here's my phone, and here's a calculator and a book, okay, right. and I'm put, and a post-it note, and you know, I'm putting it all together, and you know, it's, it's matter, it's material, and I'm organizing it in different ways, um, it's sculpture, but I'm using sound, 
So I'm using sound as material and I'm deciding where it's going to go in the room. And how thick is it going to be? What kind of frequencies are going to be revealed? What sort of timbres are going to be revealed? And so for me, it's very much about uh, sound as material and how it interacts in a room acoustically. It's funny but it's that my total, but it's totally preconceived. Right. Uh, it's funny that my phone went off, like, and I forgot to turn it off. You know, during okay. this, I know, but it's fun. As you were saying, it's preconceived, and you were picking up things and describing your process a little bit. Then my phone like interrupts you, you know, or whatever. Yeah, that's but, more like me improvising. <laughs> <laughs> but there, uh, I think it was. I, I know I'm going to get. I don't know if it was Da Vinci or Michael. I think it was Michelangelo, who said when he was sculpting marble he wouldn't start until the marble told him what to sculpt. It wasn't as if he was doing anything. It was mm. like really composed. Intuitive. Yeah, yeah, intuitive. But also I would see a man, you know, maybe naked, maybe not. I would see a woman with maybe, a, you know, a cloth or something like this. And then these beautiful sculpture, you know, came out of this process of just waiting until he saw it. And it's to me, I don't know, previously you said something about, your, your process and how you and I both need time with something before we understand what it, what it actually is going to be, what the final creation is. Is that fair or am I uh, misrepresenting well, it's different you every time? Like if I'm making, if I'm composing something, it's really different every time. But one thing is that I really need to know the material very, very well. And mm -hmm. you spend a lot of time with it. And then it's a lot about what, you know, might have some chunk of stuff and juxtaposing it with some other chunk of stuff and seeing what the relationship is and, you know, trying to decide, well, what is this? Is it, is it eight speakers? Is it a headphone piece? Is it two rooms? Is it one room? You know, is it maybe it actually should just go on a record and never mind, you know? Because <laughs> um, right. I also make a lot of electroacoustic pieces that are basically pre-recorded and that's what they are. You know, and they're not improvised. They're just, you know, they're composed to be listened to on two speakers. Um, it, I did a, a he one headphone piece about 10 years ago, mm -hmm. and I did not do a good job. I did not put enough time into it, and people enjoyed it. It was in an art gallery here in New York, mm -hmm. and I had cool. five pair of headphones, and it would interact when people picked up the headphones. That's cool. It was cool. I When I listened back and... You know, I'm like, I could have done a better job and done more research and all that stuff. But mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by using modern technology as a means to create or in my our case, maybe compose or make music. Even in this case with the Zoom, you know, people are like Zoom, blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, yeah, I haven't really taught that much on Zoom. I'm not a school teacher or anything like that. I've done a few mm -hmm. lessons, but I'm like really into enjoying what people have been creating on the internet. It's, I don't know, it's fascinating to me. It is, and it's interesting. Um, during the first lockdown- um, <laughs> The first lockdown, like well, 20,000 years ago. No, I'm just no, having we're fun. In our, we're in our third here. In yeah, Germany. same, same. It's crazy. It's really incredible. But um, when it, the first time around, um, some friends were organizing some Zoom concerts, um, and I performed trio. We did like one every week for, I think we did about six of them. And it was really interesting. So a good friend of mine, Uta Wasserman, who is a singer who actually lives 
you know, kind of across the road from me here in Berlin. Wow, okay. She, she was, you know, recording from her house. I was here in my house. And then a bass player in Prague named George Komaski uh, was uh, playing. And we played together um, trio. And it was really interesting. Of course, I would much rather play with everybody live. But it was a really interesting kind of listening. It was just, like, super careful and really... Delicate. It was really something. We, you know, it it was good. I think. I mean, I think, you know, again, it's not my preference, but I learned something about listening. It was a different way of listening, for sure. The um, the two uh, New England Conservatory students I had on that I was talking about, uh, Adrian Shabla and uh, uh, Kate Byrne, they created all of their music via Zoom. These, at least, these two pieces, and then forward. And I, I. I mean, I don't know if you'll like them. I just was so blown away that they were able to create what they created. And they're 20, gosh, I don't know, 22, something like this, 23. Some, and uh, so they, they don't really know anything else. I mean, even uh, Adrian, one of the composers said he's really never even been in a recording studio. He's always done things in his friend's homes or in his own you know home studio on a computer or phone. And I'm like, how the fuck are you kids making this music? And then I was like, I'm sorry for calling you kids, but I'm just, I'm well, blown away. I'm blown away. Well, the creativity can't be denied. That's for sure. <laughs> but, uh, and people will do it however they can. I mean, I sometimes think about, well, what will I do if there's never electricity anymore? Like, what am I going to play? Because so much of what I make is really contingent on electricity. I mean, I love electroacoustic music, I love electronic music, I love the machines, I love the tools, I love how the sound works. And I thought, what will I do? But the truth is, I'm pretty sure I'll be okay. I, I'm sure I'll find something to play, even if it's like a rock or something. You know, it's like, I'll find a way. But uh, I do think about that from time to time now, you know? So, but, right. I do too, and I don't know if you know if I told you when we talked yesterday, but that the power went out in our on our block. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and you know you feel helpless. You know I couldn't use my laptop. My phone died. Blah 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 blah. Lights, and my neighbors are all in the eighties and nineties, and we just were like, uh, "What are we supposed to do? Like read a book?" I was like, "I guess I don't. I don't yeah. know." Well, if you have enough light, and you can read a book. I mean, that reminds me a lot. I grew up. Um, really in the countryside as a kid. And uh, we lived way in the woods. And, you know, the power would go out quite a lot because we lived in the woods and, there were, you know, the, it used to snow back then in western Pennsylvania. Right. It would be heavy and wet and it would knock trees over and it would knock out power lines. And we'd get snowed in and, you know, you build a fire and read a book. Right. You know, <laughs> but it's a little bit different, you know, from, let's say, what just happened in Texas. That's another story. Right. That, that was a whole, you know, we we had sort of a situation that we'd be okay, but it wasn't like, a, it, it wasn't about, you know, sort of a faulty infrastructure. It was about, you know, it's a lot of snow and, you know, now and then the, the lights go out. But, it, you know, people weren't dependent on technology um, to take care of themselves or to um, entertain themselves with. Or to communicate in that way. But no, I mean, the phone would be out. I remember once we got snowed in and, you know, m my dad was kind of a sensitive guy who didn't own a chainsaw. 
so we couldn't really get out because he, you know, because there were trees down on our driveway. Oh, I see. We had to wait for the neighbor to figure out that we couldn't get out. Right, you know? right. <laughs> uh, it, it's, uh, yeah, I, I, in our power outage um, last week, and my hundred-year-old neighbor oh. um, called me. He said, Andrew, my lights went out. Does that mean the heat's not going to come on? I was like, yeah, probably. She goes, what do I do? I, I said, I don't know. You were in the Great Depression. Figure it out. Put a coat on. Put Bundle your hat up. on. Huh? Bundle up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what to tell her. I was like, you want me to come down and cuddle with you? But I, I, I <laughs> you know, as I'm listening to you and, and, and these records, I'm thinking – you're really, really, really dependent on technology with your music. And I wonder what it would be like to take Andrea Parkins into the woods or to the beach or just somewhere and say, all right, make some music. I bet you could do it in a minute. I'm pretty I sure bet. I could. I mean, I'm, I wasn't kidding when I was talking about rocks because, okay, granted, I amplify them. But, you know, I, I work with a lot of objects that are not electronic they're really you know kind of doing a sort of foley with them you know just manipulating them to make sounds and granted um you know i i take advantage of the fact that i can process the sound with my you know software but it's not actually necessary to do that i can you know it's percussion basically you know um working with objects it's kind of percussion and you know you can elicit different kinds of sounds. Yeah, but see, even you clapping right there was musical to me. I mean that that was that was already music, and I think it you just exude music. You say you don't remember the show, but I saw you in Seattle at the Earshot Jazz Festival at, at this venue called On the Boards, which, by the way, I just think is a cool name. And you were with Ellery Esklin on tenor and Jim Black on drums, and holy shit. What an amazing band. I mean, I don't I, I don't even know how to explain. I was in the first row and I remember because I had my feet on the stage and the stagehand or somebody, stage manager yelled at me, you know, and he's right. I shouldn't have had my feet on the stage. But my God, your playing and especially Ellery just blew my mind. I mean, the fact that I remember it, you said it was probably late 90s. I agree with you. So you know, 20 some, whatever, is it 20 years? It is 20, right? Yeah, yeah at least. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I can just see, but mostly feel that moment. And I just want to say thank you. And also all the times that I saw you at the Knitting Factory on Leonard Street. And I believe, I don't think I ever saw you play on the house, on the Houston Street location, right? Well, I think the very first gig that Ellery and Jim and I did was at Houston Street. It was uh, the very first time we played together at a concert was there. And I remember it vividly because I was really nervous because Ellery's music um, in the beginning, especially was really hard for me to play. And it was, there was hmm. a lot, there were a lot of notes on the page. Right. And, well, I mean, it's interesting because over the years he wrote less and less uh, and he was sort of able to put very little on the page and it would kind of activate all kinds of interesting stuff. But that's because we knew each other so well by then. But at the beginning, there was a lot of stuff on the page. And I sort of have the memory that like making it work was really um, hard work 
to make it work and make it musical for me um, was hard work. And I remember that first gig being super nervous. And also at that time, um, I had, you know, I, one thing we didn't talk about earlier is that before I started playing with Ellery, I was mostly playing free improvised gigs that were kind of non-idiomatic, or I was playing with, I think I played a bit uh, with Joe Morris and a guy in Boston named Andrew Newman, um, and I was making electronic music pieces, and I was playing in rock bands, and I kind of, you know, but I'd been studying improvisation for years um, with a guy in Boston named Harvey Diamond, who had been a student of Lenny Tristano's. And this was all on the piano before the accordion or any of this other stuff. And so um, I kind of had a lot of issues about, you know, I kind of felt like I could play in a jazz context, but I was a little bit worried about pulling it off. And it was, um, I, I had, a, I was pretty thin skinned about it at the beginning in Ellery's band, like kind of worried um, that maybe I couldn't cut it. And it was hard for me. You know, I, it was actually hard for me in the beginning. Yeah, but the, in the end, obviously, you nailed it. I mean, that's, you know, to applaud you. Yeah, it was and, a lot and, of work and right. a lot of patience on Ellery's part. I mean, it was also interesting. I, it's funny. Um, it's kind of sweet. It's really different. And, and, you know, we were talking the other day about economies and dif different kinds of economies of music making. I mean, one of the things that was really great about playing with Ellery was that there were indeed things that I was not able to nail. And it was usually polyrhythmic stuff was really hard for me because I grew up listening to a lot of groove music but not playing a lot of complicated groove music. So imagine I'm playing with Jim Black and Ellery Eskelin. And as Jim said to me once, what is it about 9-8 that you just don't get? <laughs> we, were, we were on a train in uh, Switzerland. He's like, Andrea. We were recording, I kept screwing stuff up. What? I don't get it. What is it about 98 that you don't get? But um, Ellery used to come over to my house in the East Village, um, and I would make him lunch. We'd have like a salad, and nice. then he would spend time with me going over stuff and over stuff and over stuff. And, you know, I understood that most real jazz musician would walk into the rehearsal and they would have it down, they would nail it, they would do it, and then you do the gig and then you do the recording. And with us, it was really like Andrea needed um, some uh, rehab, <laughs> you know? Well, I, I actually think that it, it's, it's also based on the fact that you're probably wanting to do things by ear. And, and when you say the page, for those who don't know, you're talking about reading like a chart or a, a manuscript mm -hmm. or whatever, yeah. that maybe you were getting to a place where you wanted to hear it as a lot of rock bands, you know, just sit in a garage, quote unquote, like old school and yeah. jam. Yeah. I, I don't know if that's true, but. No, for me, it wasn't because actually I had what you might call classical music itis, which is to say that I was in fact quite a good classical pianist, and I could read very well in that context. But there's this weird, um, I don't know what it is. There's One of the things that was great about studying with Harvey Diamond is that he got me off the page. Instead of like having music in front of me and reading a chart and trying to make music out of it, he got me listening. Because with um, Harvey and a lot of those guys that are coming out of this sort of Tristano thing, you are not 
transcribing solos, you're singing them. So you're really listening and you're really getting it into your body and into your ear and um, really quickly getting away from the page and memorizing tunes in a different way. But for me, there was this weird, I can't explain it, this weird kind of glitch or rift between moving between the page and getting the feel in my body so that if there would be some kind of a groove that we're playing and, you know, Jim is playing around, um, you know, he's, he's not articulating, you know, four, but he's playing around it. And I need to know where it, I really need to know where it is and it has to be in my body. It was really hard for me to get it into my body. It was either I'm reading it and, you know, which is goofy because by the time you're done reading it, you can't actually do it. You know, you know I mean, I, I couldn't really get it. So I, it took me a long time to get a lot of that stuff incorporated uh, in me as a feel, like getting the feel was hard for me. Okay, so when I say you wanted to do it by ear, that's, I, I think, at least in my just mm. definition, I, that's what I mean. You wanted to be okay. feeling it. You didn't want to be just reading it. I mean, I, yeah. I, I know classical musicians who read books during the rest. Uh, my manager is a Las Vegas performer, and he says they play video games, you know, when, when they're not, you know, playing their instrument. And they're just really just reading the music. They're not, there's no, there's, it's not um, digesting. They're not trying to feel it. They're not trying to hear it. They're just doing a job. They want their paycheck. Yeah, well, I think that's a particular context. I mean, I, I have some very incredible classical musicians in my family, and I don't think any of them are doing that. You know, just, and, you know, all the classical musicians that I know and, you know, contemporary composers that I know, I would say that's not what's happening. But there, it, there was some kind of mind-body problem that I had where I wasn't really able, if I was reading it, I wasn't able to incorporate the feel in my body, which you got to do. And it took me a long time with Ellery's music to really get there with it. And in fact, the, the last time I was a side person um, was in Chess Smith's band, and there was a similar issue. The drummer Chess Smith, right? Yes, sorry. Right. Uh, drummer Chess Smith, he had a quintet with uh, me and Mary Halverson, Tim Byrne. And Who's been Tim on the Knight. show. Mary Halverson's yeah, been on right. the show. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, um, Chess also would occasionally come over and, you know, pound out a groove and I would like sort of find my spot in it, you know, the, the part that he wanted me to play. And so it's interesting. Um, and kind of one thing that I sh should say about, um, you know, I think Ellery's band was incredible and I actually think Chess's band was pretty incredible too. Um, but one of the things that was really important for me after a while, I mean, that band broke up in 2010, so that's like 11 years ago. Mm. Um, in the last five years of that band, I was really beginning to realize that the kind of music that I wanted to make and to play was not that music. And it was an honor and a privilege and very moving to be part of it, but I understood that I was really wanting to go back to my roots in electronic music and electroacoustic music. And that's when I started making installations and multi-channel pieces um, and really exploring more about what I could do with different kinds of processing with sound. So that kind of, that was probably around 2005 that that started to happen. 
and and we ended in 2010. So we kind of went right. in different directions, but it was great to be in that band. It was beautiful. One of the things that that struck me, first of all, we should tell people that the Knitting Factory <clears throat> used to be owned by uh, Michael Dorf, who now owns City Winery, which right. many people probably know about it. Uh, I, I've seen a lot of shows there. I've never performed at City Winery, but what what a what I've never Michael. Been there. <laughs> oh, it, it's pretty phenomenal, actually. Dorf yeah. did a great. We should call him Dorf. Second of all, um, and Michael's had some issues with his location in Manhattan. I don't know if you saw that article he wrote. Um, yeah, pretty interesting how he got gentrified out of uh, his Soho location in Manhattan, very by Disney. Very oh, well, interesting. I know, I know about Disney coming uh, downtown. That's quite intense. Yeah, and anyway. People, I'll, maybe I'll put the link to the article. We'll certainly put the link to your your record and so forth on here. But one thing I wanted to ask you is, yes. so you're playing with Ellery Esklin, a tenor saxophonist, composer, and Jim Black, drummer, and also composer, and both are band leaders in the 90s, late 90s. And your woman, I mean, was it, did you think anything of that? I mean, like, sure. <laughs> what did what did you, what did you think of it? I thought a lot of things. Um, first, I should say that of all the men that I could end up playing with, that was probably, um, I was lucky to work with them because we had really a nice time together and it was an incredibly respectful situation. Um, Ellery's mother uh, uh, was a jazz organ player and my understanding is that a lot of his earliest musical learning was with her. Wow. So, you know, he, and when I met his mom, you know, she played Hammond B3 and she was a working musician. She put her hair up in the, in the bouffant and put on the sparkly dress and went to work. And so when I met her and I saw this little woman playing Hammond B3, she played satin doll for us. It was marvelous, you know, with the pedals and everything. And um, I thought, okay, he's really used to working with women and understanding women as musicians. And so that, with him, that was really like never an issue. And Jim also, I would say, not really an issue. Um, but I would say more subtly there were issues. So before I started playing in New York City, um, I had been um, getting a master's degree at Rutgers University in visual arts because I also have a background as a visual artist. and. My degrees are all in the visual arts because when I tried to go, I went to Berkeley College of Music for two years in my late teens, and it and that was that was interesting because I'm quite certain that I was being sexually harassed. But in those days, there was no language for it. Yeah, there was no there was no definition. Like language well, for it is a great word, but well, like not only language, I didn't know that was happening to me. I just knew that it was like really hard to sing on key because like my ear training teacher was hitting on me and everybody else in the class was guys because it was only 10% women when I was there. And I was super young. I mean, I hadn't even finished high school and I was like halfway through my senior year of high school and I started going to school there. And so I was like on my own for the first time. I was from a small town in Western Pennsylvania and I'm in, at this place. And back then it was kind of like a tough neighborhood. I don't know what it's like now, but it was very tough and it was really overwhelming. And um, really not a good experience, really, really not a good experience for me. So that, so I had that experience 
but then a lot of nicer things happened and I sort of found my way to art school where I was making electronic music and experimental film and then eventually drawing and sculpture. So I did that for a long time and when I moved to New York, I moved essentially to play music but also to get a master's degree in visual arts and I moved with another musician, a boyfriend at the time from Boston, we moved together and he started playing music and I was finishing this master's degree. And then the second that I finished that master's degree, I started playing music in New York like really much more. And the problem was this was the early 90s. It was, um, I had been in a program where pretty much all of my peers in the program were gay women who were very political and very, you know, connected with identity politics. And it was super interesting. And I questioned a lot of my own, um, uh, you know, ignorance. Um, and, you know, and also the time of HIV where there was so much about, uh, you know, different ways of articulating queer identity and um, so much tragedy and lost again and again and again. I mean, I'm actually thinking about that a lot now in the COVID time, thinking about what it was like in the 90s in New York City. Um, so very weird for me to be going, um, having been in this place at Rutgers where this was like really, we were talking about it all the time and reading critical theory about it and people were making art about it. I wasn't, I was making other kinds of art, but you know, I was around it a lot and it was important to me. And then coming, to New York and playing music, let's say, downtown at that time, um, I did know um, rock musicians and no wave musicians who were um, very cognizant of issues of, you know, uh, gender issues, you know, feminiz feminism and um, queer identity, all of that stuff. But most of them were rock people, and the people um, that I met sort of in the so-called avant-jazz scene, they may have been more hip to that, but I didn't have that impression. That was not my experience. Well, I also, and I think we touched on this when, when we spoke before, that it wasn't so openly discussed. No. People weren't out. Right. And I can remember, you know, hooking up with guys in the 90s and, you know, you're about to engage, you know, in sexual interaction and you'd have to ask the question, are you positive? I mean, you're in this very intimate moment and you have to ask or you're supposed to. I'm not saying that we always did, you know, like, hey, by the way, can I see your COVID test before we, you know, or well, your AIDS test? It was it was a very strange time. It was a really, it was a really sad time. I agree. And the fact that when I brought my boyfriend at the time to shows that I told him we can't hold hands and we can't kiss, you know, whatever it might be. But maybe that's maybe that's on me. Maybe I was paranoid. But, you know, well, I you just obviously didn't feel safe to do that. Right. In that context. And, you know, it might have been you, but it might not have been you. Might not have been you. It might have been the, the combination of you and being in that scene and what you thought you might have to lose or you might have to defend. You know, that's that's possible. Uh, one of the I don't know. Uh, no, that's a really great summation. And one of the things that 
I had I had this author on the show, James Gavin, who is finishing up his biography on George Michael um, from Wham, and you know George Michael getting caught in a bathroom in L.A. having sex with another man ruined his career, at least in America, not in Europe, not in England, but that was like pretty much your life is over. What year was that? Uh, great question. I don't remember, Andrea. I'm sorry. A while back. It, yeah, you no, know, it was many years ago. Yeah, exactly. It was a while back. Yeah, and it, I think it was 2006 something. Uh, actually, people don't get mad at me. I don't remember, but I brought this up on the show a few times. But I mean, literally, like a mega star gets caught having sex in a bathroom with another man, and boom, his career is over. And I find that really sad. I, I'm, it makes me really unhappy. I mean, if you came to a show with a boyfriend or your husband or whatever, a partner, nobody would care. And somehow if it's a same sex thing, I don't know. I just find the whole thing well, fascinating. I, I, I think hopefully we're somewhere else now. But um, I don't know if we are, Andrea. I'm not I sure. We are. I hope we are. But maybe not. You know, um, I mean, one thing that, you know, getting back to this issue of like, being a woman in that scene, I do remember having a conversation with another woman musician uh, who um, thought that I was kind of overreacting to um, what I perceived to be kind of a, the difficulty of being a woman musician in that scene. Um, she told me I should just be going for it. Um, and it's interesting because one of the things that I think is really important, um, I remember having this conversation with Jim Black like a thousand years ago, and I think he would have a different perspective on it. But one of the things that's really interesting is like if you're a little classical girl pianist and you're practicing in your house by yourself, it's not really like going down the street and hanging out with the dudes and you know getting a drum kit and a guitar and making some noise together. And you know, maybe it's bad or maybe it's good, but the fact that you have people around you who are also doing it, whether it's bad or good, supports it. You know, so it's happening, there's the support of others, you know, you're all doing it together. So it's a lot less lonely a thing. And it's, um, it's kind of hard to intersect at a certain point, you know, like, if you're used to really being on your own and you, you kind of want to join the, the cool kids who are playing music. And in those days, I just didn't know any girls playing music. I knew guys playing music. So um, I wanted to play with the guys, but I also felt a little bit like, is this okay? I don't know if it's okay. Um, and always kind of felt like I needed to maybe prove something. Now, perhaps I didn't, but it sure felt that way to me. Um, but, but to be fair, the people that were the nicest to me in New York, uh, there was, a, there were some much older musicians who were quite supportive when I first came. You don't want to name names? I'm going to name a name. I'm going to say William Parker. Oh, William. Yeah. Great I'm going to say William Parker was really a doll. Um, and I'm going to say, um, it's been interesting. I've been lucky. I've had some interesting mentors along the way or, or encouragers. Um, 
Joe Morris was somebody who really encouraged me early on. He, he talked me into making my first record. Wow. And he told me, he said, you know, Andrea, hurry up and make a record already. And she, he said, you won't, you won't love it, you know, so you'll make another one, you know, and you, you just keep going. And uh, keep doing it. Keep doing it. So he's, he was somebody, uh, Nels Klein is somebody who I've worked with some who was also very encouraging. So, you know, there's, there's been people along the way. Um, it's interesting now I'm working a lot more with women than I ever had. You know, I mean, I don't know if we said this, but I live in Berlin now. I don't live in New York City. We have not talked about that, I don't yeah. think. And I am working with a lot of women here. And it's, um, I mean, I like working with musicians. I hey, don't care what they are, but, you can, know, it's interesting. Can I say something? Uh, you're, you're working with Liz Cossack, right? Or, or at least doing, you're doing a sh some, vir some virtual show with her involved. You are. I actually, I, I, I wrote it down. Yeah. Do you know I Liz? Am. Do you know I her? I do know Liz. I do know Liz Cossack, but I, and what am I doing with her? I don't know. Someone. Oh, I just did it. I played on um, a bill with her on yes. Saturday. Right. Okay. That's what it's past yeah. tense now at this yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I, I just saw her. It was great to see her. She sounds great. She's amazing. I really She's love her. Also but a very I, nice person. Yeah. I, I also, I, I guess in the end, I, as, as I mentioned when we were talking the other day, whatever, mm. that I, I feel like, you know, it's important to open up the door and to this, to this room so we can all discuss our experiences so that we can understand what's happening and that we, un we understand the struggles people have gone through. As I told you, I had Danae Greenfield, that young pianist on the show. I think she's 26. She might be 27. Mm -hmm. And she went to Berkeley 25 years after us and she had the same experience. She was like the only female, only, fe only yeah. female in the jam session thing. And like, why is everybody ignoring me? Why, why am I not being invited on stage? And then somebody does pay attention to her, but it's just because maybe they want to, you know, hit on her. It, 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 when you said, hopefully it's gotten better, I think it has, but the, the only way it will even get better, better is if we discuss it. And I think that's important. I agree. I would agree. I mean, one thing I can honestly say is that I was really not very good when I, when I got to Berkeley. I mean, I just, I had been a pretty good classical pianist and I had this idea that you go to school to learn things you don't know. Right. <laughs> Which I think is very sweet because actually I was right. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, but, you know, my whole notion, I, I was interested in jazz and it's, it's incredibly sweet and naive as I think about it because my exposure to jazz was quite limited. My older brother who lived in New York City, a brother who's about a decade older than me, would buy me records. And so when I was about... 14 or 15, he brought me two double albums. Uh, they were both uh, prestige re-releases, double albums. One was Sonny Rollins and one was Thelonious Monk. And I just listened and listened and listened and listened and listened and listened to those records. And so I thought Thelonious Monk is what jazz piano sounds like. And yes, but... I was very shocked when I got to Berkeley and someone asked me to transcribe an Oscar Peterson solo because I thought, hmm, why? 
You know, I mean, like I, I couldn't hear it. It sounded really boring to me because the whole thing, you know, God bless Oscar Peterson, but the whole thing, what was so attractive to me about Monk was like his articulation, his address, sort of this timbral thing that he would elicit, he would elicit and the sort of um, particularity of it the very idiosyncrasy of it, which I never heard anywhere else again, not surprising because it was Thelonious Monk. Right. So to me, that was like the definition of jazz piano because I hadn't heard anybody else except for, I think my parents had a Dave Brubeck record and I didn't like that. Right, so, like take five or something like this. Yeah, totally. They, yeah. My parents like classical music and um, like I grew up in a house with all kinds of music, but not much jazz, like everything else, but not much jazz. So it was, you know, I grew up like on funky music and, you know, Stravinsky, you know, which was all good. I mean, now what, what I understand is that the music I was attracted to, it was all tamarily um, um, kind of particular. So like Stravinsky uh, but, and Carla Bley and Monk and, you know, um, Bach Brandenburg concertos with early instruments, you know, stuff that was tamperly, you know, kind of tickled my ears. Right. And so that's what I like. That so, but at Berkeley, um, you know, I really couldn't improvise. I couldn't figure. I had one of those classical music things. Like, how do they do that? How do they do that? Right. And then somehow studying with this guy, uh, um, Harvey Diamond, sort of tricked me into learning how to improvise. <laughs> uh, I I really. I'm going to do my best when uh, to put a Harvey Diamond link because uh, he is just I don't know you what know he him. does. I I never got to meet him, but everybody He's still around. Any of my students that I've talked to that have come to me, you know, for a one-off lesson or whatever it is, or that like that guy is like magic. He just well, he seems is. to be able to bring out this energy in people and like find their, I'm going to say weakness, but it's not a weakness. He goes, no. he, he's just like, he, it's like a watering the plant. Tendencies. 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 Okay. Fair um, enough. And, and the other person that had that, who I also studied with for a while was Connie Crothers. Yeah. Connie, uh, you know, there's that great video that's being thrown around social media with her. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. Yeah. And it's maybe eight minutes. It maybe it's fifteen minutes. It's very short, but you're like, oh my god, she is amazing. She was amazing, and like like the way she talks about, you know, I was just I was just coming up with this thing, and you know, just, yeah. You know. But that's like totally. Harvey used to talk that way. I remember I would go to see him. He go, Andrea, man, how are you doing? And I would say, well, Harvey, um, you know, I mean. And then I would sit down and he'd say, so did, play me something. I would play him something. And then he would say, okay, play me something else. And, you know, and I studied with him for five years. He never said if anything was bad or good. Right. Wow. He just, he pointed out what was different. And I had to do all these bloody, you know, uh, exercises that came for Tristano, which is like sort of doing scales and arpeggios every way you can possibly, you know, twist your fingers and hands into doing them, which was great. And it was really about getting a beautiful sound on the instrument. Like, and I had never studied um, improvisation or jazz with anybody who was really talking about sound like that. And that's what I loved about him so much because it was like really got this incredible sound. But I guess I, I, I agreed on all that. But I guess my point about Harvey is that he was able to see what the person 
needed or was asking for. So it wasn't like a for formulaic situation no, where one size teacher. fits all. Yeah, exactly. Teacher, but I do think, and I've thought about this a lot. because That's I why I haven't met him because I'm afraid he's going to say, you know, Andrew, what you got to do. And I'm like, no, he would never do that. He I know. Do that. He <laughs> I doesn't know. do that. All, I mean, I don't know what he does now. I haven't seen him, you know, for 30 years. Right. But what, what he does is he creates a situation where it's not about judgment. You, you forget to judge yourself. You just play. You just listen. You see it's you and the instrument. And um, it's the, he's, he just it's very much about you without ever saying anything. He doesn't say anything, but he creates a space where you do you and you sort of find what your tendencies are. And, and develop them. So so how does that back relate to what you and I were talking about pre-show uh -huh. where we were talking about, you know, either doing an installation in your case or in my case, writing a piece of music mm -hmm. where you and I said at first, we hate ourselves, you know, we're like, ah, I can make it better. And then we love ourselves, right? And then we're like, okay, we got it. And then in my case, I'm like, ah, I hate that piece again. And then maybe later, like 10 years later, I'm like, ah, that was pretty good, actually. It comes I, and goes. Yeah. Right. But but wouldn't wouldn't Harvey say, you know, just love everything that you do? Maybe that's what he would say to me. Maybe not you. Maybe he would yeah. just say, Andrew, you, you just made a sound. Love it. You know, no matter what that sound he would say is. That. He would say, you just made a sound. Okay, make another sound. And be, that sound is different from that sound. How? Like, you just, like, just, it's more about, it's not about, how do I explain it? It's not so much about loving the sound or loving yourself. It's more about paying attention to what the sound is. And that, that is actually so interesting that the rest of it is not so important anymore. So it's, it's really about, um, you know, let's say I would play something and he would say, cool, so play me something else. And I would play him something else. And he might say, you know, gosh, that sound you got is different from the sound you got on the last thing. And so it's just sort of um, paying attention, calling attention to what is actually happening without getting caught up in the junk of one's own ego. Like your ego is out of it. And this is so great because it becomes really about music and it, it's not about oneself and, you know, is it good, is it bad, you know, am I getting over? It's none of that. It's really about sound and it's really about music. And boy, what a relief. Well, and what a, what a beautiful <laughs> statement, Andrea. What and, a that and what a gift. And it came from you. It didn't come from Harvey is my feeling. Well, he created uh, a space for it. Very, very, I mean, very. I never had a teacher that did that before. I tell you that. Fair enough, Andrea. I kind of feel. Excuse me. I kind of feel as though your music is not that accessible to a lot of people, and I wondered how you felt about that, or if that was something that you even thought about, or. Um, I feel fine about that. Um, I think it's accessible enough to enough people that I feel that I'm not like, you know talking to myself, I, you know, I'm able to play with other musicians who get it and I get them and people do come to hear it. You know, I'm not playing at Madison square garden, but that's okay. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I feel fine about it. I think it's kind of more important um, to find something that you love to do and do it and not hold back.
And uh, you know, it's interesting. Um, my older siblings were rock musicians, and they could, they're really, really good singer songwriters. And I, that's something I'm completely not able to do. Their music is much more accessible than mine. But you know, I'm kind of I'm really in love with all of the elements of it. You know, I love sound. I love electronics. I love playing with other people. Um, I like playing for other people. Um, it feels good to me. It's, 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 a, it's like a joy in life. So I'm, you know, I'm completely fine with the fact that not everybody is going to lo love it, but some people will love it. One of, one of the aspects, beautiful, one of the aspects of your playing, and again, folks, just so you know, uh, the first time I heard Andrea was probably the late 1900s, you know, that you're unapologetic about your music. You make the music that you enjoy. And if people don't want to be there to, you know, enjoy it either in person or whether on recording, then you're okay with that. It, 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 you're just true to yourself. It has brought you to where you are today, which is, I don't remember your exact wording, but you you feel as though you you're becoming more and more whole or true to yourself or something yeah. like this. Yeah, well, I had a lot of support along the way. It took a while to find the right people. I mentioned this one teacher that I had, and then you know also playing with Ellery Eskelin and Jim Black, that was supportive. You know, Joe Morris's encouragement was important. Going to art school was hugely important because that was the place where I really found my people. I found people that were interested in the same things that I was, and I found a way to think about music that was really different. Um, I studied film for a while, and that the idea that you could juxtapose one image with another image and that that makes sense made me think about well, what happens if you juxtapose a sound with a sound what kind of sense does that make? And that's, that was kind of a way for me to think about music that was really different from playing classical piano or playing in a jazz band or, or a rock band. It was just different for me. So um, I've kind of taken all of these influences, being, you know, studying visual art, studying film, playing with all these different incredible people and just accumulating that knowledge. It's like the longer you live, you're, you're accumulating knowledge and it becomes who you are. Uh, and now I, I do wanna say it doesn't mean, you know, of course I care what people think. Of course I care. I wanna make the best work I possibly can, but on my own terms. You know, like it's work, what, what we do is work, but there's a lot of joy in it too, you know, so. It's both, in fact. It is. It, and I remember, I don't know who I was talking to. It might even been my own mother when I said, yeah, I have to work. I have to go on tour. And she goes, it's not work. You love it. Like, yeah, I do love it. But it is work. And it is absolutely enjoyable. But you had this amazing comment you made during the break. And I don't know if you want to speak to it about you're talking to your 16-year-old self or maybe somebody who is 16 now, maybe female, maybe not, coming up. And I'm going to paraphrase you and just, I know you'll correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> but it, it's, no, no, it's all right. It, it, you just said, just do what you love, right? 
Is that pretty much? Pretty much. I, I guess the one thing I would say is don't stop. Do start and don't stop. If you stop, you're done. That's it. But if you keep going, something might happen. Like, I kind of can't believe that I didn't stop. I actually hmm. did stop for a while. Right. This is, so after my two miserable years at Berkeley College of Music, I quit school and became a waitress, I think, for a while and kind of was totally miserable and didn't know what to do. And then I went with a boyfriend to Europe and, you know, we broke up while I was there and it was just like terrible. But then I was in London and I heard Carla Blay with her band. And I saw this woman with this incredible, like, incredible living, breathing organism of a big band with, like, the most incredible sounds. And she was, like, making it happen. And I was so inspired. I went right back to Boston and, you know, started playing again, you know, because I'd really stopped. And that was kind of around the time I started studying with Harvey. But, you know, and and also playing electronic music. So um, I'm kind of amazed that I came back to it, and I'm kind of amazed that I kept going. But I'm super glad that I kept going. I'm so glad that I kept going. And so if I met somebody who was young and not quite sure of themselves and feeling maybe even discouraged, I would say, please try to figure out what it is you love, and please keep doing it. I had a, and give it a chance. Just really give it a chance, and a chance might take thirty years. <laughs> right, right. You never know. I mean, it seems daunting. It might seem daunting for somebody in their teens, but you I don't say you don't say thirty years. You just say keep going. <laughs> <laughs> don't say thirty years. Too late. Too late, Andrea. Too late. But the the first of all, let's clarify. Carla Blay is just phenomenal, and she has been. Speaking of keeping at it, I mean, since the 60s or 50s even? 50s, I, I think. Yeah, 50s. And I had this young... She was my hero. Act, to be honest, you know, she, she was in Seattle when I was coming up. And she was my oh. hero, too. And she had that hair, the kind of curly. And she was conducting this big band. But she wasn't playing In the Mood or... Tuxedo Junction or whatever big band, you know, chart. Probably people. playing her music. Yeah, exactly. And you just didn't see that. And one yeah. of the things that I remember is that, you know, my teachers at the time, you know, white male aside, privilege, my situation, were saying, you can't write your own music. But I was since I was like 15 or something, maybe 14. I just really? wanted, wow. I, yeah, I, I wrote my first song. Why did they say you can't write your own music? Oh, because you're supposed to do something else first, like oh, learn standards, nice. which I did. Nice. I was learning standards right. at the same time. But I just heard all this music. And I mean, at this point, you know, Pat Metheny recorded a song I wrote when I was like 23, you know, like literally. Cool. Really cool. Two years ago or something, Pat like was like, I, I want to record this song, Tune Blues. And I'm not patting myself on the back, but, but I'm just trying to say, like, whatever your aspirations are, you know, maybe Tool will play your song at some point or, you know, whatever your genre is. And so it's worth it to tell people, don't, 
I mean, you veered off the path, you think, right? You, you were a waitress or whatever you were. Well, I mean, I was 20 and, you know, that's, that's about the right time to be all messed up. And I certainly was. Um, you know, I, I waitress. I mean, it was good. I, you know, I grew up very, very, you know, upper middle class privileged. Um, my parents told me that my job was to study and to practice the piano. And so I kind of hadn't worked very much. I taught piano lessons a little bit and babysat a little bit and painted houses for my dad a little bit. But basically, I hadn't really worked very much. And it was good for me to work. Um, it was, you know, so I waitressed, I worked in bookstores, I ended up eventually becoming a copy editor. And actually, when I moved to New York, my day gig was working um, in publishing for a while, and then I ended up being a contract grant writer. And it was good. It was, you know, I made a living, because I wasn't making a living from music, I tell you that. But, um, <laughs> but you know, it was, it was good to know that I could do that. Um, but I, I did feel really unhappy after I finished Berkeley because I really wanted to go to college and I couldn't quite figure out how that was going to happen. And eventually I did make it happen. And in fact, uh, I had a very scenic route through my education. I finally graduated from college when I was 29 um, after going to a lot of different schools and, you know, ending up in art school. And that was a good thing, but it took me a while to find it. You know, there, there's so many stories about, I mean, I know how people feel about Bill Gates. My family knew Bill Gates. My mom was pretty close to him coming up. We've all mm -hmm. lived. And uh, a lot of people dropping out of high school and so forth and becoming very successful. And or like Michael Jordan not being accepted to his high school basketball team, you know, not getting on the Is team. That true? Yes, apparently. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's a folklore but it's certainly a story that's told and i think it's in that michael jordan documentary that's on netflix called last what's it called oh my god i can't remember i don't remember the name of the show also but we have pretty, a german netflix i don't think it's on it <laughs> right uh there's a great documentary series about michael and and he did get rejected he didn't make the team his freshman year or something like that. So he just worked his ass off because he wanted to play basketball. That's it. And so, you know, when I think I kind of interpret this as when you meet those hurdles, you're saying, just keep doing what you love and just, and if you have to do something else for a while, then do that. I mean, I've also done the same thing. I did contracting for a while because music, you know, back in the nineties at the knitting factory, you know, even though Michael Dorf had a lot of money, what we were making a hundred bucks a gig, right? 150 bucks. Wasn't a gig. that much? That's a lot. Yeah. Right. Well, I don't know. All right. I think it was more like 40 bucks, but you know what I mean? I think yeah. that there's this understanding that we walked right into on the stage and like, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Andrew Parkins, you know, or Ellery yeah. Esklin or, you know, James Taylor. I mean, we all had to start somewhere. Well I th yeah, and I think it's all changed anyway. It's hard. It's going to be interesting to see how things go next, you know, with all that stuff. What do you um, mean by that? Well, um, you know, nobody's performing at the moment because of COVID. Right. And um, it remains to be seen once this is over, not to be negative, but to be realistic, it remains to be seen, you know, what's left because it's been a long time since, you know, venues have been able to be open. 
So um, I really hope that, I mean, I'm in, a, I'm in Berlin and that's different from New York and other places, um, you know, but there were a lot of really wonderful um, venues here uh, that are self-organized or funded, different range of things. And a lot of the really, um, you know, it's a question about whether a lot of these places are going to be able to reopen. They may not make it financially. And what that does for the musicians or, you know, the scene, I mean, it's really intense to think about. But uh, we'll have to see. We'll have to see what happens. I, I find it interesting, just to pick it up a little bit, yep. that... Um, I saw Tony Bennett, the singer Tony Bennett, is posting like himself cooking some food. And then he's posting, and maybe he's not even doing it. It could be just somebody who runs his social media, you know, a song that he sings. And he's getting like 48,000, you know, views. It was 48. Love Tony Bennett. Yeah, it was 48.7K views of Tony Bennett doing a virtual concert in his living room with his pianist, with a mask. And I'm just like, all right, he's just kind of owning this shit. And isn't he like 92 or 91 or I, something I like that? I think he's quite old and I think he's not altogether well. Well, I, he can sing his ass off. Well, that I know. And I mean, that, that I, I'm just impressed by the engagements. And, uh, and I mean, the people that are actually, you know, hitting like, you know, whatever or love. And so I think there's a way forward. And if your wisdom, yeah, great. If your wisdom has ever been more powerful is now because I have um, my friends and excuse me, myself included, you know, it's like, what the fuck are we going to do? I mean, you and I played tours or, you know, played shows or were on the road you know, six men, six months out of the year, or something like this, right? And and now it's it was just like nothing. And so, yeah, but question. I we'll have to see. Well, do you have in conclusion? Is there anything that that you you want to put out there that's like could manifest for us or a prediction or anything that you? Well, you know, I it's. I'll be honest. You know, these are. Um, this is a very particular time. It's nothing like anything I've ever experienced before, uh, this moment. And um, I think, you know, I'm trying to focus on what I love, which I kind of have always tried to do, and that comes and goes. Um, it's really, I, you know, I miss my friends. I miss my colleagues. I miss being in the presence of people. Yeah. I mean, I make, I make, pieces that are meant to be heard in rooms. Like when I say I'm making uh, multi-channel speakers and uh, uh, pieces for loudspeakers and installations, that presupposes presence, that somebody walks into a room and can have that experience. But right now they can't do that, you know? So I'm kind of making the stuff that I hope people will be able to experience as it's meant to be experienced. But it might be that I'm gonna have to think about doing it some other way. And so it's a little bit like what I said about doing those Zoom concerts. Of course, I'd rather be in a room playing music with other people, but I did find, it was like finding another language that we could all speak together on Zoom that would work, you know? And 
it was very moving because the point was that we were all striving to meet each other in whatever way we could. And that's quite moving. So I would say, you know, if I had any wisdom, and I'm not wisdom, I'd say we should strive to meet each other in whatever way we can. That's what I would say. Right. Whether it's in this context or whatever it is. Well, for real, if we can, and if we can't, we have to invent something. And I, I'm, you know, and that's what I think. So that's, that's all I got. No, I, I think it's With beautiful. That. And Andrea, I thank you so much for being here. And I I know people will, will love getting to, you know, understand you more. And hopefully they'll go and check the link and listen to your music. So totally thank no you. Problem. Have a beautiful night. And, you know. And I, you. I don't know. Yeah, thank you. All right. Talk Take to you care. later. Okay. Yeah. Bye, everyone. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Constant Constance. Tune in every week for new conversations. And if you want even more, check out Andrew's Patreon for more exclusive content and additional conversations. Hosted and produced by Andrew D'Angelo. Edited and mixed by Lucy Little. Original music by Andrew D'Angelo and Maximilian Moore D'Angelo. Intro is Henrietta Weeks. Thanks so much. See you next time. You fucking yeah, you fucking rocked it. Like she doesn't she doesn't know she says podcast, right? (laughs) Like she doesn't even